Hello, I'm Ann Faison, and this is Are We There Yet? Understanding Adolescent Grief. My guest today is Elise Gall, who I found as I was researching different therapeutic approaches to childhood grief. Elise wrote an article that I found really interesting on EMDR therapy for adults revisiting childhood loss. And when I looked her up, I realized Elise would be an ideal guest for this show because on top of her many years of using EMDR, she has also years of experience working with kids and families experiencing trauma and loss. And she was the director for Camp Erin, a camp for grieving kids. So I'm so glad she accepted my invitation to come on the podcast. So welcome, Elise. Thank you, Anne. I'm really happy to be here. So I found you because I read this piece you wrote called Covert Grief using EMDR therapy. And you write about sort of being frustrated with the limits of traditional therapy to get at what you call like the dimensionality and range of experiences, Mm -hmm. um, thoughts, sensations, and emotions of adults with covert childhood grief. So you said this frustration is what led you to using EMDR. Can you talk about why you think EMDR is more effective for this covert grief than regular talk therapy? Uh, Yeah. So my frustration was uh, often with the models of treating grief. And this was true, you know, and grieving centers often were doing this, which is really just, you know, providing presence Mm -hmm. and holding, you know, holding space and um, or support group model where, you know, there's um, support from other people who have similar experiences. So there's nothing wrong with any of those things. But I was, I didn't feel that that got at what you mentioned, that word, the dimensionality Mm. that I was seeing and feeling in people that I was meeting, that grief is uh, uh, is not, you know, a singular dimensional experience. And anybody who's had a loss knows that, but there wasn't, you know, there just isn't as much material out there about what that really means and how to make sense of that. Um, So I wanted, you know, EMDR addresses the dimensionality of of experience, you know, the imagery, the thoughts, the emotions, and the body, the somatic piece Mm. that is also present in people, you know, really do feel when they're grieving. Right. I just want to ask you a little bit more about that dimensionality. Um, I certainly relate to that idea, and I'm always trying to kind of talk about grief as something much bigger than sadness or pain, which is what people primarily associate with the word. Is there a part, when you talk about that dimensionality, do you also mean things like the ways that people can expand through grief or increase their awareness of compassion, self-compassion, like kind of the, what I would think of as sort of the benefits of going through a grief process? No. So that, yeah, I would maybe think of that as post-traumatic growth or no, what I mean is, you know, well, there's so many examples of this, for example, even just the idea of heartache, people often experience physical pain so somatic symptoms after a loss right Uh, blood pressure goes up you know this is uh, documented so the physical symptom lethargy or anxiety so it isn't just feelings of sadness right so you have the both the emotions and the somatic expressions of that 
there's also, you know, grief involves, particularly for adults, maybe a little less so for kids, but this idea of the past, the present, and the future, that dimensionality. Mm. We are attached to people based on our experience with them from the past, but we also have a sense of the assumptive world. You've probably heard that term. Mm the world I was expecting to have in right. the future. Right. So there's those dimensions. Then there's other emotions, sometimes anger or guilt or or relief or all the other emotions. Like you said, it isn't just sadness. Mm-hmm. And so it isn't just like working out sadness. There's issues of, you know, working out other emotions too. Right. Um, and then there might be memories that are disturbing that mm-hmm. I need to address um and they're you know coming like you know flashbacks and i can't really talk my way out of that right so i read in your bio that you have multiple trainings and certifications including mindfulness and hypnotherapy i know for me the path of looking for answers has included many different modalities from acupuncture to therapy to energy healing so i always encourage people to try different things because i find there's no real answer but that all these things are sort of helpful. And I think for me, my idea is always to just understand my grief better. So as a practitioner, do you agree that people with unprocessed grief need to find their way or would you recommend EMDR for everybody? Yeah, I think it's a great therapy for anyone, but I I think it's, yeah, yes in both. I'd say mm-hmm. I would encourage people to explore. Again, we're talking about the dimensionalities of grief and the somatic elements and so all these other modalities can get at things that again talking or time you know isn't going to necessarily get at so right you know i think emdr i would say absolutely if there's a if there's trauma involved which again is a Mm -hmm. a term that can mean a lot of different things but i'd say you know if there's you know, intrusions and trauma and flashbacks, EMDR really will, you know, address those things maybe more than some others. Right. Other modalities. I mean, I can share a little bit about what I've been experiencing because I just started doing some EMDR therapy Mm -hmm. and I've been, you know, in and out of therapy sort of all my life for different things. Usually specifically I'll go for some, you know, something I'm struggling with, but Certainly my early loss of my mother always comes up and Mm -hmm. it's clear that it's a big factor in the way that I sort of move through life. But what I think is so fascinating about it is that we can revisit particular memories which have really colored and they're not necessarily traumatic. They're just an interaction that I had, uh, something somebody said, a moment that's very clear in my memory that clearly carries a lot of weight and has sort of informed the quote unquote story I tell myself of my life. Yeah. And so when I shift that, when I revisit that with the MDR and it kind of almost deflates the memory or it kind of takes some of the power away from it and it shifts my whole story of myself. So I find that fascinating. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, that's exactly what, you know, I experience as someone who I've been on both ends of that. I have experience EMDR and I'm a practitioner that we don't always know what are the things that 
have colored, like you said, colored the narrative in a way that maybe isn't helping or is a belief I had as a child or at the age I was. And I haven't revisited it because, you know, I'm invested in it. It's part of my narrative. You know, so EMDR, so much of it is an exploration, you know, of those little things, um, mm -hmm. not, you know, not entirely about the sort of healing or fixing, but it's like, oh, the sort of recognition of all the parts that go into, you know, how I form my narrative. So I think that's, you know, well said what you, what mm. you're noticing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And just back to that word trauma, <laughs> I never... You know, my mother died of cancer when I was 14, and I never thought of that as a traumatic experience until I was much older. And actually, it's much more recently that I've even read that it was kind of, I don't know what the word is, codified in um, in the DSM that I think a loss or the threat of a the loss of a parent for a child between certain ages, I can't remember what it was, I think it was like 11 and 20 is considered traumatic. Yeah. So I never, I never used that right. word to think about my own loss, but just using that word has sort of, it was probably a few years ago when I discovered that and I was like, oh, that kind of, it kind of changed it for me. Yeah. Yeah. So many of us who are adults and have lived, you know, <laughs> perfectly fine lives and to think of it as trauma does sort of put it in this other category of feeling like, oh, I, I missed something or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe there is more to think about there. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you think about just the, the safety and stability that having, you know, your, your parent there and then not there, again, it creates a sense of unsafety and uncertainty and I'm still vulnerable. I'm in a vulnerable age. I mean, we know just from what, you know, neuroscience has told us about brain development and how it's not really done, you know, till 26. Mm -hmm. um, so trauma is, you know, really anything that overwhelms my capacity mm. for coping. Mm. So it doesn't, you know, it's it's not defined by what the thing is. You know, anything that overwhelms my capacity, my, my, my skill, my ability, my nervous system. Yeah. And so the loss of a parent, the time leading up to it and the, when it happens and after it happens, we have this unsafety, which is, you know, overwhelming. Yeah. You know, and I would so. think in kids, it's really hard to detect that sense of overwhelm. Yeah, because they're kind of hardwired to look normal, act normal, um, yeah, to just move on and and kind of not um, not express. And I think, I mean, just looking back on my own experience, but also in working with families, I know that a lot of kids, when they lose a parent or have that traumatic experience of even the threat of that loss there's a kind of shutting down that happens where yeah. they're not really feeling anything so that you wouldn't as a parent see that your child is overwhelmed in any sense at all. They, they'd sort of just be going to school and seeming quite normal and not wanting to talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that's where I got the covert grief 
thought, mm. which is that's that's how it goes underground. Um, right. It's kind of the I'm fine, and it's it's a survival strategy. Yeah. And but we don't always see it. You're right. Yeah. And and we're not always being invited to see it. It could be you know we're sort of blocked. You know, but parents can get really you know blocked out of it. Right. Right. Um, because it's a survival strategy, and so there's an imperative there. Yeah, and I don't think it's even conscious, right? No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Not entirely. It could yeah. be, but again, if I'm really worried about how my other parent is doing, you know, and there might be some consciousness about it, mm-hmm. I don't want to upset that person. They're already grieving. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, very normal. And so... It goes underground, and that's why, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm seeing someone, you know, 25 years later, mm-hmm. and what was covert is starting, to, well, it's not starting, but there's a sense of, okay, you know, there's clearly something going on here I need to address, and I, I you know, I haven't, I've kept it kind of side-eyed for a really long time. Right. Yeah, for me, mm-hmm. I didn't go to this therapist for um, my own grief at all. I was going for something else. And as we sort of worked through that, you know, these other things came up and and my therapist suggested, you know, w- would you be open to EMDR? And I was like, sure. <laughs> and it's been mm-hmm. amazing. <laughs> I found it amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, so, I mean, I would count myself among these people that I'm about to say, you know, I know many people and, and I would have been among them had I had, had I not sort of stumbled into this, but many people feel they can manage their grief without mm-hmm. any help or they do therapy for a while and figure it's in the past. Mm-hmm. But so what would you say to those people about the benefits of revisiting this stuff? Do you think it's, um, do you know, do you think that for some people it's perfectly healthy to leave it alone? Or do you think everyone could kind of get something out of revisiting it? I think every, I honestly do think everybody benefits from sorting out their narrative, whatever it is. Mm. Again, I think that's a non-pathologizing approach, you know, really yeah. that it's not that some people need to and some people don't. Mm. Um, so I'd say I want everybody to do that, you know, um, however they can. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the benefits are the exploration of, again, those moments or those pieces that I hadn't really addressed. You know, when I see people as adults, often there's a particular sort of nut that is, um, it's like the stone in the road, you know, mm. that's keeping grief from processing fully. And it can be a belief or a feeling again, that got blocked out or uh, a somatic experience. And so sometimes it's, you know, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. But usually, the, you know, the people I'm seeing, they, they're having some distress that they're aware of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in relationships and in trust and sadness mm-hmm. or, again, guilt is sort of popping through. Yeah. And with kids, you you probably know this. That often, kids often carry a sense of accountability mm-hmm. for for bad things happening to adults. Yeah, 
I mean, I saw that a lot in hospice where you really mm. want to clarify, you know, that sort of healthy, healthy narcissism kids have where they think, oh, if I'm good, you know, bad things won't happen. And sometimes that's the nut, that's the stone that hasn't really been processed. And mm. a sense of like over accountability is still there. Mm. And we trace it back to childhood dealing with an ill parent or the death of a parent. So that's really fascinating. So you're saying yeah. you're saying there's a healthy narcissism that all kids have because they're just very self-focused. But when it comes to losing a parent or family member, that narcissism can turn into a sense of, yeah, over accountability. Like it's somehow it's about them. Yeah, it's very common. It's sort of the, the downside of magical thinking. You know, I can mm. sort of imagine all these, you know, things and... Yeah, the sense of uh, being the center of things. Mm. And um, so I might, you know, I have a, a causal relationship to what happened. Right. And it's not necessarily, again, intellectual, because intellectually people know they don't. But it, when we go in there and do the float back, it's in there as a uh, a belief mm. that's, you know, so... It's, that's a, again, it's a burden I might not know I'm carrying until I go back and, you know, process it. Yeah. And then in that processing, how does that sort of get undone? Can you explain a little bit about that? How does EMDR kind of undo something like that? Yeah. So EMDR uh, takes the position that, that we all have the capacity for adaptive processing of our experiences that will move towards healing if given the opportunity to explore, examine, feel, notice mm. the memory and notice the all the levels of the memory, mm. uh, the imagery, the thoughts, the emotions, the body sensations. The sense that when in the MDR we have what's called dual attention. I'm in the I'm remembering, but I'm also sitting in the office. So that it's not a full immersion into the memory. We're sort of aware of, oriented to the present, but also in the memory. Mm -hmm. And in the present, sometimes in part, um, the preparation for EMDR is to make sure that there are perspectives and resources that I'm going to have, mm -hmm. that I, I'm going to bring an adult perspective in or an adaptive perspective into the memory. Can you explain what you mean by adaptive? When you say adaptive, what does that mean? Well, let's let's say take that example of grandpa died and it was my fault. Mm -hmm. So it's my fault, I'm bad, is a sort of negative belief that's not adaptive. Um, that's would be called maladaptive. Mm -hmm. You know, at the time, it's a normal belief to have, but if it gets kind of installed into my system as a belief I have about myself and hasn't been examined. It hasn't been processed. It might, again, still be there in, and I don't like to use the word maladaptive, but it is, uh, again, a belief that's not really serving me anymore uh -huh. and also isn't true right? because, you know, children aren't accountable for much of what happens to them, right? Um, and, you know, including the death, someone's death. So when we revisit it with all of the resources at my disposal, compassion, understanding, uh, clarity, 
patience, you know, bringing resources into that memory, mm. you know, the perspective of, oh, well, you were seven. Mm -hmm. Does a seven-year-old cause, you know? Right. So you bring in the sort of re other resources that the person has or you help build them first. Mm -hmm. And then you will reprocess the memory with an adaptive, compassionate perspective. I see. Where it's not as painful. It doesn't mean the bad thing didn't happen, but it's not attached to negative material about myself or the world that isn't serving me anymore. Yeah. So I wonder if, I wonder if you think from all your years of working with this issue and working with, with clients that a certain amount of what you called covert grief is sort of inevitable when a child loses somebody early? Or do you think there are ways that we can support kids so that it does kind of get processed in real time? Well, I think there are ways that, I think it's both. I think there are ways that we can, you know, help kids and help ourselves. I think the inevitability of it is what most grieving people experience, which is that I might, you know, reconnect with uh, the loss around certain times of year, the holidays, the, you know, so we're, we never have this idea of it's always over, right. you know, it's over, I've grieved, right. you're gonna, oh, I'm getting married, I, you know, my mother's not here, or, right. you know, so, and it might come up in a way I haven't thought of it before. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not necessarily a covert issue, but it's maybe something I hadn't quite learned about my grief yet. Mm -hmm. um, and that grief and grieving is a learning process and that that learning can happen anytime, mm. depending on what's going on. You know, I might learn that how I approach my partner is based on, you know, something that happened in my family. And, you know, this is an ongoing process. Right. I think that the covert issue, the way that we can help kids is, and adolescents, is to, you know, let them know that this is kind of an open dialogue with yourself and between us. And it's normal. And let's be open to all the dimensions of it so that there's permission and space as I'm learning new things and, and processing new things as they come, that it isn't, you know, I haven't put it away. And it's, um, again, covert suggests, I don't even know, <laughs> I don't even know that I'm, you know, how I'm feeling about it. It's, it's so exiled from, from my thoughts. Yeah. So, you know, I think families can do a lot to just really create the space. Because as, you know, a lot of adolescents, for example, don't want to process things for kids. They don't want to see a therapist. Right. And they don't want to talk about it. Right. That's not where they're at. And so we want to be okay with that. And maybe the, the way that that child will express is to have it be, you know, creative or, you know, some other process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing I'm always sort of trying to 
hammer home to listeners of this podcast is the idea that really the best thing we can do, it sounds like this is what you're saying, is kind of leave the door open, continually acknowledging like this is all okay to talk about and I'm here to talk to you about it whenever you're ready is kind of the most important thing you can do. Um, because in a way it says to the kid, even if they don't feel like talking about it, it lets them know that it's normal to be just having the feelings and that there's nothing that they shouldn't be feeling, or there's nothing that they can't allow themselves to feel, you know, when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. And I think sometimes the, you know, people are afraid, you know, they get Mm -hmm. concerned about bringing up the loss or acknowledging it. And again, it's this idea of opening a dialogue and keeping it open, Mm -hmm. you know, and staying with that, as you said, this kind of flexibility Mm -hmm. with how that might be expressed or the time it might take. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it's very common for people to, you know, if it's a loss of a sibling or a parent or the, that at some point people stop talking about the person. Yeah. And that, you know, sends things underground. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so hard. I have to say it's Mm -hmm. even, even somebody me like me, who's sort of (laughs) thinks of herself as I'm very grief positive and I'm so open (laughs) to talking about this. Sometimes if I'm talking to a friend who I know who has lost somebody, it is hard to talk about that person. It It's just that there's sort of this really strong impulse we have to avoid it. Yeah. Because um, we don't know. We don't know where they're at. But mm-hmm. experience tells me that anyone who's grieving wants to talk about the person mm-hmm. that is gone, you know. Yeah. They're already thinking about them. So talking about them is not going to make it worse. Yeah, yeah. I think that we get, you know, we're afraid of the the pain we might see as if we caused it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but we didn't. You know, a lot of times I might say to someone, you know, how's your grief going? And then they can talk about the person or not, or, you know, so it's a a broader question. Okay, so just in terms of, yeah, families and navigating, you know, it's so hard to help adults who are already grieving. Mm Mm-hmm figure out how to support their kids at the same time. I mean, what are sort of your main ideas about that or strategies? How do you, how do you generally tell families to kind of navigate that? Yeah. So I would, I suggest to grieving parents that they get a grief counselor or have grief support. So they're, they're getting some, you know, help and often, I would suggest, again, if they're in an acute grief, that they have people that are sort of their point people for each of their children, that there's other people that has have eyes on them. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, they're bringing in the family, community, whoever. And then um, the other thing I often suggest is to keep in mind that you want to have strategies for doing your grief separately and also together. So if you're a parent, Mm. you need to do your, a lot of your process on not necessarily in the presence of your kids. Some of it will be, but some things maybe not. Right. And that that's okay. It's also good while you're, is to have a strategy that there's something 
you know, maybe as a family that you do a ritual often so that there's, um, you know, you're not going to, nobody can kind of go silent about it or get the sense that, you know, I shouldn't talk about it or, Mm -hmm. you know, one example would be, you know, having a, a jar, you know, in the house and everybody writes notes in the jar about some thought they had or Mm-hmm. mood they had related to grief mm-hmm. or the person that they lost and you put it in the jar and then pick a time 20 minutes a half an hour a contained amount of time and we do the jar together mm-hmm. pull out the pieces of paper and so that might be something where you might have a, an art project together or this is the day we go you know we want to go to visit their favorite place or have their favorite food and you know, and, you know, give kids flexibility about opting in and out as age appropriately, but that you're sort of setting this tone that we do this too. Right. And so nobody's isolated. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I imagine that kind of ritual would be probably very appealing for kids, children, Mm -hmm. and really unappealing to teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It depends. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. It really yeah. depends. Yeah. And, um, you know, with teenagers, I think, you know, you're always dealing with this autonomy issue, mm-hmm. you know, and so to allow for autonomy, but also to challenge it, mm-hmm. you know, when I was raising a teenager, they did want to be in their room and I often knocked and went in, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, I'm mm-hmm. not going to leave you there. Right. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that sometimes and pull you back in. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, you're going to, you got to be creative about it, yeah. perhaps, you know, with, with your teenagers and also that one day they want to do it and one day they don't and, you know, the shifts. Yeah. Um, but to really keep your hand out, you know, yeah. to, you know, pull them back in and without, you know, again, this sort of delicate balance of, you know, autonomy versus, you know, connection that you, you want to stay connected. Yeah. No, I think with teenagers, it's so tricky. Um, One of my feelings about having been a teenager who was just entering high school, right, as my mom died, Mm -hmm. it's a point at which you're really creating your identity. Your identity is sort of Mm -hmm. becoming your own at that age. And so for me, grief was always a big piece of my identity. Mm -hmm. And it just took me a long time to sort of recognize that and also come to terms with it Mm -hmm. yeah but i know for many years if you'd said that to me i would have like wanted to throw up i would have been like ew like no right that is so not a part of me you know so i think it's really interesting with teenagers i think they're sort of a particular group and that's why this whole podcast is sort of the idea of um really looking at that segment because it's so i think it's so unique yeah, so when we, you know, when I was running Camp Aaron, hmm. we had kids there from 5 to 18. Hmm. Of course, you know, we had different things, but the teens, of course, and I know you know this, like really benefit, again, that kind of connection of similar experience and feeling like I belong. And so everybody in the teen group had an important person, you know, lost an important person. Mm-hmm. And so they spend the weekend kind of building really, really strong connection and they're doing those rituals, you know? Yeah. And also, you know, 
some little bit of process groups and things like that. So, you know, for teenagers, because that autonomy is important, they need to be with identity is, is being with friends. Yeah. And if my friends also understand grief, all the better. Exactly. And that's so yeah. rare. It's so rare, I think, for teenagers to have that opportunity. I mean, the kids that go to those camps are really lucky, I think, to have that moment of bonding with other kids in their situation. Yeah. And so many teenagers, I think, are really resistant to going to something like that because they, mm -hmm. you know, they don't want to deal with it. Yeah. 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 They're resistant. And yeah, so we would just really work on navigating that because it could be a transformational experience. Yeah. And so the nudge, you know, yeah. or knowing the, when to nudge. The full push. <laughs> yes. With the foot. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Really think you should go to this, you know. Yeah. Because um, it yeah. was, you know, it was really beautiful to see. Yeah. You know, kids come disconnected and leave, you know, with best friends forever. Yeah. No, oh, I can imagine. I wanted to ask a little bit, you said you worked in hospice. Mm -hmm. So dealing with you know, the grief that's associated with a terminal diagnosis is obviously a, a whole layer of grief that happens before mm -hmm. the death. Do you think getting family members of the person who's dying to recognize and get support for that earlier phase of grief is really helpful or, or is that part of what you were doing? Absolutely. Yeah. So we would, in hospice, you're involved with the family sometimes before somebody goes on hospice, but those services are, you know, generally available that you do kind of pre, what they call mm -hmm. pre-grieving or, you know, and you're helping the family yeah. move through this overwhelming period of time. And, so, you know, I work with families where it would, you know, often be a young person, a parent and little kids. So they're overwhelmed if one parent has a terminal illness. Mm. Uh, it's overwhelming. And so helping people kind of move through that and help their kids be part of what's going on and creating ritual, depending on how old the children are, we're creating rituals, we're creating also space for them to play because mm. it's stressful. Mm. You know, to, it's a you know, hospice it could be a home setting or a, an inpatient setting. And that's a tough environment for kids. So yeah. sometimes I was, you know, just running interference and, right, right. you know, hey, let's, let's go, let's go play. Let's get out of here. Right. And other times we'd be talking about, you know, well, what's going to happen and what happens when the body stops working and, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I think is so interesting about childhood grief um, and adolescent grief is that kids are built for growth. You know, that's, that's what they're doing. They're, <laughs> they're in this huge period of mm -hmm. growth and death is kind of the absence of growth. It's like, it's the termination of growth. So what's so interesting to me is the way that, that biological sort of mandate for growth bypasses the grief process because grief is really about slowing down. It's really about being with yourself in the present and to me, it makes sense that that's a lot of why so much childhood grief gets repressed is that you, you're you growing, you're moving forward. It is really hard to handle 
this thing that makes no sense towards growth and growing up and getting bigger. Ironically, I think grief is a big piece of growing up. I think it's a part of, you know, all of us growing up is understanding that people die and how do we move through that? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, kids are learning machines, right? And we, we all are, but kids are especially, and again, if it's a death of a, you know, a parent, it's, it's unexpected. It wasn't in a plan, but it becomes the reality of this person's life. And so it's not aberrant, you know, it might feel that way, but it, it's kind of, you know, helping kids to approach whatever happens in their life in a way they can adapt to. And that that's, you know, what resilience is about. That's what, you know, growth is about. That's what learning is about. And as you said, my relationship to life and what, you know, what life is about, which is, yes, it's about death too. Mm. Yeah. No, I think that's such a big part of it. It's so, um, it's so full of contradictions, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. You know, it really is. It is. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview and I'm so um, pleased you were able to come on. And for people who are curious, how can people find out more about EMDR or your work? Yeah, so it's all on the World Wide Web. Mm-hmm. My, I have a website that talks a little bit about it. It's my name.com. EMDR has uh, certifying organizations. One of them is called EMDRIA. E-M-D-R-I-A. Mm-hmm. The other is the EMDR Institute. Mm-hmm. And there's information there about what EMDR is. Mm-hmm. There's definitely plenty of information out there. Great. Less about covert grief. <laughs> yeah. So, um, And is covert grief a term that you coined? I, I'm not sure I've heard it before. Yeah, okay. I did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good. I think it's really good. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And um, I will put links to your website and other places where people can find you in the show notes. But um, really appreciate your time so much. Thank you, Anne. It's been really wonderful talking to you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the podcast, please share and rate and review as much as possible. It really helps helps other people find the podcast if you rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. And as always, I want to thank Josephine Wiggs for the music. It's from her album, We Fall.